This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. Welcome to our 14th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson, I'm the journalism faculty at the university, and with us tonight we have Luis Urrea. I can't pronounce it very well. It's but close. It's, it's, I'm, I'm working on it. The author of uh, several books, but maybe best known for his Pulitzer finalist book, uh, The Devil's Highway, voted the best book of the year by the Los Angeles Times, Miami Herald, and several other publications. Other books of his include The Hummingbird's Daughter, Six Kinds of Sky, Wandering Time, By the Lake of Sleeping Children, Across the Wire, several books. He has a comic book coming out soon. Want to hear about that. Uh, Luis has taught at Harvard, at the University of Louisiana, at the uh, University of Colorado, and now teaches at the University of Illinois, all in their writing programs. Luis, welcome to our symposium. Thanks for having me, Dean. It seems like so much of your writing deals with identity issues. Uh, people, people unsure completely who they really are. Um, people who wish they were somebody else, they have, they're feeling trapped perhaps. I noticed this about so many characters in your book. And, and then I also read that your own parents called you by two different names. Your mom called you Louis, and your father called you Luis. Well, he, he called me cabron a lot, <laughs> but yes, Luis. Your mom didn't call you that, did no. she? No. Uh, and so I'm just wondering if, if these, these identity issues that your characters seem to have in, I think, in all of your books, fiction and nonfiction, if it, if it started way back there. What do you think? Wow. Well, you know, um, I think a lot of us don't want to be who we are. And I think a lot of us go through a struggle in life just trying to accept who and what we are. I will give you 20 bucks if you can go in the audience and find somebody who's not either on a diet, in therapy, you know, doing something to improve or change themselves or worried about something. I think I am all those things. You are? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we don't have to move off the stage even. Wow. You're so svelte. I don't see you <laughs> yeah, on a diet, yeah. actually. <laughs> but. Uh, um, so I think that's a universal struggle. I will tell you that I, I felt a little bit stung when you started talking because I thought, oh, you've caught me here. I used to tell my friends that my life in San Diego, not that I don't dig being home, but my life in San Diego was one of a lot of despair and freak out worry. And so I used to describe myself like a skunk trapped in a kitchen. And I was looking for the open window you know, and I used to warn my friends, when I leave here, I'm never coming back. And they didn't believe me. And I always think about the Jimi Hendrix, Dean's a rock freak. And so we've been talking oh, yeah, about- Yeah, like you're not. Yeah, we've been talking about music all day. Yeah, but, that's true. But I always think about the Jimi Hendrix song, um, Hear My Train a Coming, when he says, you know, I'm going to 
leave this lonesome town. I'm going to come back and buy this town and put it in my shoe. So I came out of yeah, fear and worry and doubt. And my parents weren't happy, not with each other. So yeah, you know, maybe I wanted to have transformation. I think we all do. Um, and I think that fuels your relationships with people, with a place, certainly with your artistic pursuit, spiritually, right? We're all, we're all in some ways transforming and maybe we are realizing what we are. So in some ways I fled just to find out what I really was. I didn't really know. And I used to joke with people, when I lived here, I very strongly identified with my dad. Mexicano, you know, Tijuana, all that stuff. And then I went and moved back east where my mother was from. So the joke was, you know, I went from frijoles to baked beans. <laughs> and I found out that I belonged there too. It was a shock yeah. to me. I couldn't believe it. I thought, what? I belong here? This is pretty amazing, you know? Yeah. Well, part of, part of this who am I and do I belong here had to be part of your, your writing life too because you decided you were a writer or it was revealed to you that you should be a writer and, and then the next X number of years, all you get are rejections. Uh, yeah, that's true. Oh, I, I, that had to have been hard. Uh, gosh, that's a strange experience, but I was telling my homies down here from San Isidro High, yeah. Um, you know, we were joking, but I, I, I went to Claremont High, and I didn't have money, didn't have a car, didn't have any clothes, certainly wasn't a jock, didn't know how to dance, but I could write poetry, okay? There's a turn on. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you something. Yes, indeed. The, uh, you know, the, the quarterback got all the attention, but I stole his girlfriend. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> poetry. And you could sum up my entire early writing career as any female name here. There's a poem. Oh, Colette. I'm so, in, I'm so drunk on your smile, Colette. You know, that's what I did. I didn't know I was practicing. It's what I had. And they were words. And it came from loving to read. And, and my family's here. And they can tell you, we had a very loquacious family. And the Ureas, I told you this earlier today, masters of BS. <laughs> Ma I don't know if you have these characters in your family that talk and tell stories. We have this aunt, Tia Leti, called her La Flaca. <laughs> yeah? And La Flaca, I bet some of you have this aunt, La Flaca. She was flaca, and she, had, she was blind in one eye from diabetes, you know? So she was, and she wore cat glasses with glitter in them, and was always smoking. And she would tell us these crazy stories, you know? And, you know, the, the, I always tell people, I remember one Christmas, I think Octavio, my brother Octavio was there, and in the house in Tijuana, they had a kerosene heater. And they would turn the lights off, and this stinking heater had um, etched flames in the glass, and it would cast these ghastly, sort of orange-green light. And, and Tia Leti, La Flaca, told us this Christmas story, which I've never forgotten. Imagine her with the twisted-up eye and the cigarette, and she's lit from beneath. <laughs> it's Christmas. And I have to tell you, just to set the scene, our grandmother, Mama Lupita, our grandmother was named Guadalupe Murray. What a family. 
And she was sort of a lapsed Catholic and seemed to think that if she burned incense, it would hook her up with Jesus really pretty well. So she burned incense. You remember incense all over Mama Lupita's house? And so there were these gray cones of ash. And I stupidly, because if you asked Tia Leti anything, you're an idiot. I said, Oye, Tia, what's all those gray cones? And she says, they're the souls of dead men. Wow. And she said, oh, yeah, if you touch those, you're going to unleash the spirit in the house. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so this Christmas story consisted of, I've never forgotten it, and this may be where writing came from. She says, you know, your abuelo, Juan Urrea, was riding a horse in Culiacán, and it was late at night, and he was passing the cemetery. Y ahí estaba parada una muchacha muy bonita, beautiful girl. And he said, no, it's not right. You should be out here all by yourself. And he got off the horse and he said, oiga, senorita, I will take you on my caballo, you know. She's telling this whole story and we're listening. And my dad was too. And she said, get on the horse. And he began riding and he thought, hijo, que suerte tengo, you know. <laughs> Good looking girl. And he's riding and he, he decided to do a piropo. You know piropos when you say something dashing to the... So he turned to the young woman to say, whatever, you know, I did not know lilies bloomed at Christmas, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and she says to us, he voltea, and she's a skull with no flesh on it, was going to bite his throat and drink his blood. <laughs> and then, but this was the thing that I love, she says, Feliz Navidad, cabrones. <laughs> It's true. I was like, you know, wow, what a hero. And in, the, in that atmosphere, she starts telling me about the hummingbird's daughter. So I'm thinking, yeah, right, you know, sure. I didn't know it was real, a real story. But that, the, that, that urge towards story, I think, our family instilled it in me. Everybody always talked. Our dad was a crazy storyteller. So, But uh, I, I believe all that, even though you say your family's full of BS, but I, 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 I believe Except everything. Except me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I believe everything you just said, but, but then when you try as a writer to get validated as a writer, right. which is to get right. published, everybody said to you, not interested. Uh, it was a strange thing, because see, Dean, you have to understand, I am a damn genius, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I, wow. was very, I was very fortunate in that I, I went to UCSD and I got a... <laughs> their, their, their provost is here, apparently. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, I went to Muir College and I wanted to... I wasn't really that interested in college, but the parents made me go. And I could not believe that when you went to college you could study stuff you liked. I thought, what is this? And I started, I started out as a drama major, and I switched over to writing. Um, and it was just like going to heaven for me. And I had this mad professor back in the day. You know, you had these crazy professors. I had a 26-year-old professor that wore love beads who, during one workshop, climbed up on the table and went to sleep. He's like, you guys keep talking. And he went to sleep, and I thought, that's really cool. You know, I, and he had brought Ursula K. Le Guin 
the science fiction writer, into the school. Now, our father was killed in my senior, the winter of my senior year of college. And I did not know how to process this event, which was terrible for all of us. And so I wrote about it. And Ursula Le Guin, to get into her workshop, you had to audition. And she took that story and put me in the class, but then she accepted it for an anthology. So it was my first sale. Wow. And I used to feel like my father sacrificed all that and gave me a life without knowing he was doing it because he started my life. But the other side of that coin is you think, wow, you know, start out with Ursula Le Guin. I made. You're set. Yeah. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> not exactly. So, you know, you, you, you send things to, to small press magazines and you send things around. Fortunately for me, I was also a cartoonist. Um, and so, you know, you, you're sending your work out a lot. And we were pretty hard up. And, you know, the things that were horrifying to you when you were younger are now kind of touching. And uh, one Christmas after my father died, we had nothing left. And my mom, for a Christmas present, kind of chokes me up, but she gave me postage stamps wrapped in Christmas paper so that I would submit one more story somewhere. So uh, I kept writing, and I didn't have a lot of luck. Here in there, a Chicano Journal would take me. But that professor, Lowry Pei was his name, had gone to Harvard. I was working with Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church doing mission work in Tijuana. I was a translator. And I couldn't take it anymore. I was, I was living at my brother Juan's house in their back room and going to Tijuana. And it was just a struggle. And I wrote to Pei and I said, I can't take this anymore. It's violent, it's bloody. I don't know what to do. I'm never gonna make it as a writer. Can I get a job as a janitor? Can you give me a job as a, as a janitor at Harvard? And he wrote back, remembering who I was when I'd forgotten, and said, I think I can get you a job. He said, but you're gonna have to send me three published pieces. And I didn't know he was second in command of expository writing program, right? So I sent him the three pieces, and then I went to my all-night hangout at Winchell's Donuts with all my buddies, and I said, dudes, Ivy League's so exclusive to be a janitor, you gotta be a published poet, man. <laughs> I did. Hick boy. <laughs> but you know, that was a moment of real grace. I, they, they plucked me out of the Tijuana garbage dump, and off I went to Harvard. Um, and still, once I got there, I thought, God, it made things happen there that to me were a miracle because reading was the miracle for me. And you know, you know, you go to a place like that and you're walking across campus and there's a little sign stuck to a pole that says, John Irving is in the Lamont Library room three something at two o'clock. And you think, no way. That's not possible, you know? And I went up there and there was John Irving sitting in a room with about 10 undergrads. And he said, come in, come in. And I thought, oh my God, you know. So I went in, I sat down and I'm looking around and he says to us, okay, I'm glad you all came. I've just finished writing this book. I'm not sure it works. I'm gonna read you some of it, I want your opinion. It's called A Prayer for Owen Meany. <laughs> and he reads it to us. And I thought, I have truly gone to heaven. I have gone to heaven, met Eudora Welty, you know. Saw Norman Mailer empty an entire theater because people were so grossed out by what he read. It was great. And as they walked out, he said, Harvard's not the school it used to be. 
<laughs> Mailer. So all that was going on, and I'm submitting my work. And as I told you earlier today when we were hanging out, the first book I wrote, which was about the mission work in Tijuana and a little bit about my dad's death, it was rejected for 10 years straight. Nobody wanted to read that stuff. Nobody. There, were, there weren't any, we, you know, we, we talked about Joseph Wamba's wonderful Lines and Shadows, but there weren't Tijuana books, there weren't border books. They didn't know what to make of this book. I was told by a New York editor, the direct quote, nobody cares about starving Mexicans. Yeah, that got me going. And at the time, it was just by Luis Urrea. This is, how, this is how stupidly reactionary I was. They told me to change my name because my name was so freakish that nobody would buy my books that I should add an Anglo name. So I added Alberto. <laughs> like, I show you Mexican. You know. It was just a gesture. You know, it seems a little pretentious now, but it, I, I just thought, I am going to stand up. They're not going to buy it anyway. And uh, after 10 years, I was pretty tired. I'd come back home. I was writing for the reader here. It was kind of another weird miracle in that my mom had died, and I'd come back to take care of her stuff. And I called Jim Holman, <laughs> reader. I thought, free paper. He doesn't pay any money. And I said, do you guys need a copy editor? And he said, man, what I really need is writers. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah. He said, if you can write, you can make a pretty good salary here. And I said, you can? And he said, yeah, you have anything about Tijuana? I was like, yeah, I just happen to have a whole book, you know? And I took it to him, and then the, the city desk guys just slaughtered me, as newspaper editors do. I had not been handled indelicately like that. I'd been rejected, but not insulted. <laughs> um, but they really fixed that book for me without knowing it, and then I became their correspondent. So all that started to happen, but still I knew I wasn't going to make it as a writer, so I decided I better go to grad school. I'm going to teach English forever. Better go get a real, you know, a graduate degree. Went to Boulder. When I got to Boulder, Anchor Books, of all people, decided to take a shot on this manuscript. But they, knowing its odd history and knowing that there weren't a whole lot of border books even then, they said, please give us 12 reasons why this book should be published, which I thought was rather unfair, personally. But I know they were looking for who would buy it or who would be interested in it. But I had been burned for 10 years straight. And so I wrote things like, God wants you to. Where do, you, where do you go from there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, what, yeah. What, what could the other 11 be? Yeah, as if I thought, you know, in New York, they were going to say, oh, God, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and other writers uh, wrote blurbs for me, and so it was published. But this was took, across the wire? Across the wire. But it took 10 years, and it was rejected for 10 years. So, yeah, that's hard to tell yourself every day, well, I have something to say to the world. You know? Even though the world doesn't... Yeah, they don't care. Yeah. yeah. You know, so much of what you write, though, both your fiction and your nonfiction, is there's so much heartbreak in it, and yet, on the other side, there's all this hope as well. It's, it's this, you, you navigate this heartbreak and hope. It seems like in everything you write, is that intentional, or is that just how you view the world, and, and it just comes out that way? I, I, I told a friend of mine recently that I felt that I wrote the, f the saddest comedies or the funniest tragedies, and I couldn't tell which that which they it was. They are both. Um, I don't know why that happens, to tell you the truth. I don't know. I just, I think, I think we all go through 
a real ration of crap in our lives, every one of us. And I'm trying to honor that in everybody. I, I'm trying to really remind myself to keep my heart open to other human beings and what they're going through. And I don't think it's monochromatic. I don't. People are astonished when they go to the Tijuana garbage dump that those people are, are funny and loving and can be kind. Um, you know, I worked with a photographer from Harvard named Jack Booth, very good photographer, and I took him to the dump. I, I used to take lots of visitors to the dump, and I, I lucky enough to be friends with Sherman Alexi, and Sherman said, oh, you do dances with Mexicans, which I thought was kind of cute. Um, but I would take people into the dump, and he, he started photographing the dump. And there was a day when a cliff had collapsed and covered a, a woman. And he dropped all his cameras and helped them dig the woman out and thought, my cameras are gone, you know. But he went back to see, and the workers had set the cameras on a piece of cardboard out of the dirt all neatly for him. And he was astonished. And we mentioned it to one of the women who worked the trash dump, and she said, it's a workplace. You have to take care of your tools. Never occurred to them to steal it. They could have gotten a lot out of it. So those moments of our shared humanity mean a lot to me. Do you think you recognize that better because of your own personal pain that you had gone through? I mean, think about the diseases you had as a kid. I mean, what, German measles, scarlet fever, tuberculosis. You were abused. I mean, do you think there was something out of that pain personally that well, makes I it so that you can recognize the, that condition better? But I, I don't sit around saying, oh, my pain. You know, I yeah. don't. But I do think maybe, maybe, but I think everybody's, everybody here has felt pain. Everybody here has had some heartbreak. You know, everyone. And uh, it was hard for me to understand that everybody I meet at some point in their life has lived in the Tijuana garbage dump. It may be a much better dump than I can imagine. It may have been suffering in a BMW or something, but it's, it, we, it's, it's part of our human condition. What was that you said to me today about, about the guy who broke his back? Oh, where he says, uh, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. Misery is optional. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So to me, it's, it's all about choosing to live in joy choosing to do the work that's required of you to fully enjoy the, the, the goodness that we have. Because it's very easy to keep dwelling on the badness, and I've done it. And it takes you down to the bricks. It takes you to your death. So as an artist, then, I feel that I want to represent real people in all of their glory and foolishness, shame and pain, too. And, you know, I, I think I'm trying to learn in my own life that y your shame does not make you shameful. It's part of your being heroic. That the things you have been handed that are difficult are not what, what puts you down, are not what diminishes you, but they're what ultimately lift you up and make something greater of you. In fact, you've got this wonderful line in one of your books where you say, in some ways, the scars uh, that your writings are the scars, but they're also the blossoming of, of, of the difficulties and the pain that, that you have experienced. They're both. Yeah, I guess so, yeah, I think so. I think, but I think that's across the board, you know? Think about any immigrant writer, for example. It's part of the American tradition of literature. 
I'm, I'm remembering something a, a writing professor told you uh, a long time ago. He says, you are trying to hurt me with your writing. If you want me to feel anything, you'll have to get control of your work. Tell it coldly, let me feel it for myself. What does that mean? This stinking guy does this research, it's <laughs> creepy. I so know you. Oh my. <laughs> that was in college after my father died. I did not know how to deal with this event. And um, I tried to write about it. And you know, your first response is, is you don't know how to express profound feeling except maybe by overstating it, maybe, you know, when you're a young writer. If I had had musical skill, I would have been in a rock band. So then I could have joined a death metal group and sung in the Cookie Monster voice, you know? I hate God, I hate God. But I didn't have that. And so I was trying to write this torment out and I couldn't do it. And I kept turning in these pieces and it, they were, and this was a very staid and, and respectful, gentlemanly, old school professor. And he was rather, his eyebrows would go up, you know, hmm. And he finally said that to me and said, it's just too much and you can't make me suffer. I'm not going to let you hurt me, basically. And that was the, one, some of the best writing advice I ever got. Let me feel it for myself. He basically slapped me, you know, get a grip. And so what, so what does that mean when, when, as, as a writer, how do you, how do you, did you have to dial it back? What, what somebody says, get control of your work? What does that mean? I think in my case, um, it, was, it was a kind of a, a, a advice, also within context, because I'd been taking many poetry classes with him. We'd been reading people like Eliot, Stevens, all these great poets. Um, and so for me, it meant to get control, not only of my language and my attempt, I was uh, trying to attack with a flamethrower, and this required more of a scalpel. It had to be put in context. He didn't understand what was happening. He didn't understand what was going on in Mexico. He didn't understand my feelings. He didn't, uh, so what I wanted to do then was to try to get that experience into a controlled piece of art that had some stateliness to it, that, that chaos and hysteria didn't honor my father or my own words, but to make of it, perhaps the professor was thinking more of a minuet, you know, than a death metal song, to have this technical mastery of what you're trying to do, the science of the piece, and that if you get control of the science of the piece, then some of the emotion and the pain and the flame can be carried in it. And so now right. you're talking about the craft. Yeah, craft, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's, there's such a, a spiritual quality to so much of what you write that I think this might be a good way to end this interview. I'm gonna have you read something. Oh no, okay. All right, what, what is it? <laughs> it's at the end of your book, Six Kinds of Sky. And uh, let's read about grace. Ha, <laughs> is this where you have it marked? Uh, I do, I do. Let's take off our glasses here, okay. Uh, I always remember what Neil Cassidy, Kerouac's old buddy, once said, grace beats karma. Yeah, man, grace beats karma. Grace 
beats fiction. Grace beats death. Grace beats memory. Grace beats oppression. Grace might even beat tenure. <laughs> it's so true. All these tales are really about grace. The story of writing is about grace, grace versus fate. God's hand reaching in and stirring the pot. Six kinds of sky, six kinds of life, six versions of God, six kinds of grace. Without grace, I for one am nothing. You are a grace-filled writer. Uh, Luis Alberto Urrea, thank you so thank much you. for coming. Thanks, man. That was great. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. Sorry.